Sutta practice today. Was, was that fun? Was it nice? I mean, it's sweet, isn't it? Especially, I got to do compassion. It's like, go to the suffering, you know, be with the suffering. And Shada got to go, hey, let's be happy. Let's rejoice here. I love doing Medita practice and teaching it. Um, and I actually got a little hit myself as I was coming up this evening. Um, I bumped into an old friend, actually someone who used to work here, worked here many years ago for a long time, was a dear person, very instrumental in the development of Spirit Rock. And she and I share a love of horses, and she helped me with the horses down the front. She actually bonded really strongly with old Bob. I don't know who's been around long enough to know old Bob, but he was one of our original horses. And uh, she wanted to empower Bob because Bob was a little beaten up after 35 years of being a cow pony and all the other horses picked on him. And, and she would go down there. As actually, as I think it was kind of like Meta, she'd go, Bob, you are somebody. <laughs> Bob, don't let them push you around. You are somebody, Bob. And so it was sweet to see her. But why she was here, what the Medita hit was, uh, she's, she's become bonded with this nine-year-old girl, just a neighbor who she's become friendly with, and she's bringing her to the Monday Night Children's Program. We do that over the summer. And as I was talking to her, she was telling me about this young girl in her life that's really bringing her a lot of joy. And all these kids were coming. I don't know if you saw any, but they were just coming up the driveway. You know, as they do, they were skipping. And they, when they got to the wheel, they were like playing with the Dharma wheel there. And it was just so delightful to feel that energy coming into Spirit Rock. We can be a little serious here sometimes, right? <laughs> So just to feel that was actually my little hit of mudita. But I, want, I do want to talk about something that is somewhat serious. Uh, James last night um, was talking so beautifully about looking for the good in ourselves and others and how sometimes that's really difficult for us to do, especially in ourselves. And there can be this ten- tendency to judging, to a sense of limitation, and even can go as far as self-hatred. And uh, in the other day in the hall, we've, we've talked about this a little bit. So someone asked the question, why is there self-hatred? And referred to that story, you know, James was there with the Dalai Lama when someone talked about that. And he's like, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean self-hatred? And, you know, you're wrong. That's not, not a, a, a way to hold yourself to, in that view of negativity. And this person, so this person said, why is it there? And Shada talked about the nuclear family and how in that insularity we've lost that sense of being held in community. And I really think that that's true. That's a big part of it. But it's not as though things are perfect in extended families either. Um, I actually read a while ago the story, the autobiography, I think it was, of the Dalai Lama's mother. And she was, you know, just a simple peasant woman, basically, but she as well as um, being the mother of the Dalai Lama, a number of other uh, um, children that were recognized as tukus or reincarnations. So she had something going, but she had a really difficult life. She got married very young, and her mother-in-law was very um, uh, demanding. She was almost treated like a servant. So, you know, there's still difficulty in, in all cultures. But what we do in our culture is blame ourselves for that difficulty. We live in a culture of individualism and a culture of competition and comparing. And I think they're really also a big part of the seed of this tendency to judging, to viewing ourselves as deficient, as limited, as not okay, as not 
good enough. And this culture of competition starts really early. It's almost sad to think of, you know, the ways we force kids into a sense of competition from very early on, you know, from little league to um, toddlers in tiaras. I mean, it's just all this kind of stuff that that we, ha- you know, have kids who would just want to be out playing. I was just uh, reading, as I am wont to do, if I need a little pick me up. Dave Barry, one of my favorite humorous authors. I I, I don't know how many times I've read this because it's Dave Barry turns forty, and I think he's close to sixty now. So it's a while ago. But he's talking about what we do to kids, and it's from the parents' point of view, but talking about Little League. And he says, as you get older, you you give up um, some of the athletic things that you did when you were younger. You you have these alternate sports, and one of them he calls shrieking at Little Leaguers. He says, to, 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 to participate in this highly popular sport, all you need to do is get a small child who would be infinitely happier just staying home and playing in the dirt and put a uniform on this child and make him stand for hours out on a field with other reluctant children who are no more capable of hitting or catching or accurately throwing a baseball than they are of performing neurosurgery. (laughs) Then you and the other grown-ups stand around the perimeter and leap up and down and shriek at these children as though the fate of the human race depended on their actions. It goes on in a similar vein. It's probably more interesting to read that than my talk, but anyway. (laughs) But, you know, this has happened in various ways to all of us. We've been thrust into a sense of competition, of of comparing, of, of, you know, where are we, who's picking you for the game, you know, during playtime at school. And as we grow older, we're, we're judged on all of these things, on our academic ability, on our looks, on our bodies, on our success, on our fame, on our possessions. And really, in in Western culture, not just um, narrowing it here to the States, but there's this sense that you, you, you could be successful, and even you should be successful, and if you're not, you're lazy or a failure. And this, this kind of belief is all throughout these, these kind of cultures. So we can have this constant sense of being measured and measuring. And for many of us, it's not measuring up. You know, there's always some ideal out there, always someone who's doing it better or more than you are. And it's, it's just endless. And what happens to us as children is we internalize this judging. This critical voice gets internalized, and of course it gets directed outward too, but this process happens very early on for us. I'm going to have to do this. Stop the clicking. And this can become a huge source of suffering for us, this, this critical voice, this sense of deficiency. And it affects, I'm always amazed how many people it actually affects, how many people I talk to in my role supporting people in practice, that this is really a, a deep wound. Every now and then I meet someone and they kind of go, no, they don't, I don't really struggle with that. And I'm like, you don't? <laughs> how did that happen? Um, Pretty much everyone else, including myself, has some variation of this in some area of of their lives. We did the compassion practice yesterday, and many of you probably had a sense of how natural, actually, that expression of caring can be. You know, if there's suffering, the compassion just meets it. 
you know, sometimes easier than the metta feelings. If there's suffering and we, there's the caring, the compassion is there. But what's interesting is we hold ourselves outside of that. James also spoke last night about self-compassion and how important it is. And it's interesting to see how compassionate we can be towards others and not giving any of that to ourselves, not compassionate towards ourselves. We've given you um, on this sheet, we handed out translations of the metaphrases. We didn't, I don't think, put, uh, did we put the traditional one? We didn't actually put what I understand is the exact translation of the um, traditional phases, which the two central ones actually say, may I be free of mental suffering? May I be free of physical suffering? And we've put that in the positive of may I be happy, may I be healthy. But it's interesting as we've talked about the power of words and how for some people it actually is more accessible, more relevant, more appropriate to use this kind of phrasing, may I be free of mental suffering? May I be free of physical suffering? And when we talk about free of mental suffering, it's talking about all of the torments of mind, the ways in which we struggle in our own inner inner, um, experience. And judging is a huge one. So it's something we can really wish uh, ourselves to be, to have less of. And it can actually seem like, I don't know how this is for you, but being on retreat, you're actually doing it more. Does it feel like that? That the judging line, endless, endless. I actually don't think it's that we're doing it more. I think there's two things. In the quiet, not so much activity, we're noticing it more. And then uh, in contrast to the meta wishes, it's actually in stark relief to that, in such contrast to that, that we notice it more. But it's a very common experience to have this running commentary on life. Ring a bell for anyone? (laughs) Just this voice inside the head. And what is the voice talking about? What is it focused on? The story of me. How does this affect me? What does this mean about me? You know, what are they thinking about me? There's this classic image, I don't know where it comes from, it's probably from a Woody Allen movie or something, but I imagine it's two people on a first date and one person, we won't define who that person is, but after a while they say something like, so that's enough about me, tell me what you think about me. (laughs) But that's what we're doing all the time, right? Projecting onto other, what do you think about me? What what about me? What does this mean about me? How how am I fitting in this, this sense of me. And the problem for most of us is, it's not just neutral, it's not just saying, oh, you know, floor and chair and grass and sky. It's actually this critical voice that we have learnt to um, cultivate over through from our childhood. And it's constantly assessing, constantly assessing and measuring, how am I doing? Doing in comparison to others, doing in comparison to past, to future and also judging others, because, of course, if we're judging ourselves, that, mo- that um, tendency expresses itself outward. So I, believe me, was, am, can be an expert in this. You know, this tendency to judging, to critical thinking, to judging myself as deficient. And I saw how painful it was and how limiting it was 
for me. So I actually took it up as a practice to really explore what's going on in this tendency of mind. I read books about it, and I did a workshop on it, actually here at Spirit Rock, with this man, Byron Brown, who's a student of A.H. Almas and the Diamond Heart School over in the East Bay. And he's written a whole book called Soul Without Shame, and so he does workshops and teaches about it. And I just found that book very helpful to kind of give a big perspective, but also a spiritual perspective on this tendency of mind and how important it is for us as practitioners to work with it. So some of the quotes from this evening will be from that book. And this is, some, this is from Byron Brown. He says, Judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard even to become aware of its existence. However, there is good reason to isolate that, this part of your inner process. Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. And so it's really important for us, not as some kind of side project or, you know, something we'll get to one day, but actually to open to explore and understand and then transform this tendency to be critical, especially self-critical. And metta practice is one of the most effective ways that I know of really creating a foundation of acceptance. You know, there are many other modalities that are also very helpful and skillful, and most of us need all of them. We need all the help we can get. But metta is so powerful because acceptance is its core. Accepting ourselves, accepting our experience, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and accepting what's out there. Acceptance is so key. And what's interesting about judging is We've learned to do it. It's a conditioned experience, as in, over time, it became a habit. We didn't come into the world judging and measuring and separating. We learned how to do it. And what's interesting is, even though it's such a major source of suffering for so many people, and there's so much suffering in the world that can't be change, or certainly not easily change, all of, you know, just the basic realities of old age sickness and death and grief and loss and, you know, challenges in life. Can't do much about that. This is actually one of the more workable forms of suffering that we will experience. And I think because of that, it's almost incumbent upon us to actually engage with it because we can do something about it. And the very fact that it's conditioned means that it can be unconditioned. The fact that we've learned it means that we can unlearn it, or as we keep saying, rewire, reprogram, repattern these tendencies of mind. So there's actually really good news in this. Yes, it's sad that we did end up learning this way of relating, but the good news is it can be changed. And so it really is a very significant and important part of our practice to do that. And it's central. As I said, not some sort of therapeutic, psychiatric, you know, side uh, venture that, you know, you'll get around to or, you know, isn't really spiritual practice. It's essential. I don't think we can truly deepen 
in our practice until we come to some fundamental sense of okayness with ourselves and with experience. So this tendency to comparing, uh, the Buddha talked about a lot and, and saw how fundamental or how, how deep it can be uh, in the human mind. In, in Buddhism, it's called mana, and it's usually translated as conceit, but it doesn't just mean the conceit of I'm better than. It means any form of comparing. So I'm better than, I'm worse than, even I'm the same as. I'm as good as them is a form of comparing and has dukkha as suffering uh, as a result. And so we need to look at all of the different ways that this tendency of mind operates, you know, where we hold ourselves separate and try to be superior, where we see ourselves as inferior and not good, good enough, all of the ways the mind moves. So as well as being a conditioned um, process, there's also a deeper level um, that, you know, James has talked about the amygdala and how much of our responses come from that. Uh, this sort of primal, archetypal, you know, almost the, they call it the reptilian brain. It, I, the judging ca- can sometimes have its source as deep as that. We learn how to manifest it, and that's what we can really work with. But there is a way in which it's also quite deep within us uh, as a species. Um, you know, if we, I, I find it very interesting to bring or understand how we are in the world as human animals. You know, even though we've got this big, you know, human brain up here at the front and we can do so many amazing things, we're still basically animals. And, and that history, that, that what we evolved from is not that far behind us. And it leaves its trail, you know, as they talk about the triune brain and the amygdala, the reptilian brain, and then the mammalian brain, and then this is the human brain. And so very early on was the... The, the sense when we're out there in nature, do I eat it or does it eat me? And we have to make these really quick decisions. And I always say, you know, our ancestors that heard the bush rustling and said, I wonder what that is. Oh, don't worry. It's probably okay. Well, they're not our ancestors because <laughs> they got eaten. You know, we're the product that people said, oh my God, what's that? Let's get out of here. <laughs> so that's why we have that tendency you know, it's like, what is that? You know, that little, that sense of nervousness that we can have. And, you know, so it has a place. But in our culture where, you know, and I know, you know, we can't always know, but there's a, there's a degree of safety, you know, certainly so much more than many, many other parts of the world and so much more than the animal realm. But, and so that, that edginess, that anxiety has gotten kind of distorted into an, a, an ongoing pervasive feeling of stress or anxiety. Because it, it, we don't need to worry so much about the bushes every now and then, but not in the same way. Um, but that energy has gotten distorted. Uh, I also read a book by Jared Diamond called Guns, Germs, and Steel. And it's a very interesting exploration of why humans evolved in some ways, in some places, in other ways, in other, in other places, in other ways. And, you know, there can be a lot of judgment about that. It's like a why some cultures evolved in some elaborate ways and others not. And he said a lot of it was just about resources, what was available and the different things that they had access to. 
But it really gives us, gave me an understanding of, you know, how this human mind evolved over, over the thousands and thousands of years. And he said something like, it's only 7,500 years ago, which in evolutionary terms is the blink of an eye, when the automatic response on meeting a stranger was to kill them. It was just, you know, it was either friend or foe. And so this, this is not that far away for us. He said, all the people you knew were related in some way, so family ties reduced the tendency to aggression. And he studied a lot in Papua New Guinea, that's where he did a lot of his research. He said, there, when strangers met away from the village, and this is not that long ago, I think it was while he was doing his research, would spend, they would spend a long time talking to establish relationships and therefore why they shouldn't kill each other. It's like, oh, oh, so you're my fourth cousin removed. Okay, good, you know, we're, we're down. And also in, you know, the uh, more tribal kind of cultures, people had access to pretty much the same stuff. You know, so there was sense, a sense of equality, even though they're probably, you know, chiefs and leaders or whatever, but the basic materials of life were pretty similar for people. Now, what do we have access to? You know, with a click, almost anything. It's almost ridiculous what we can have access to as far as information, as far as goods and services. You know, just, I was just reading, I read The New Yorker and, you know, things that you can get delivered in New York. It's like almost you just stay home and everything gets delivered, you know, (laughs) food and wine and do your shopping, you know, everything. It's all available. And in the media, there's just endless sources of comparison. Again, it used to be you just compared to who was in your village or, you know, maybe the broader sense of slightly larger than that, but not that big. Now we can compare ourselves to virtually anyone in the whole world and there's whole industries given over to that kind of comparing. And, you know, the 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 evolution of human culture, reality shows and all of the distortions there, they're basically built on competition and comparing and often with a lot of, you know, you'd even say cruelty built into them, being mean to people. Um, this is the, 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 you know, the whole reason for their existence. And so this tendency to get to compare and to judge and to feel compared and judged just as run throughout our culture from deep within this, this tendency, this kind of animal tendency, but it's gotten distorted and exacerbated through the media, through our cultural norms, through families. One of my teachers, Sogni Rinpoche, um, who you know was born in Nepal, grew up there, uh, and as he be- started teaching in the West, and a bit like the Dalai Lama, it's like, what is going on with these people? He calls self hatred the disease of the West, because as I said, that you know, even though there's, there's not to say there aren't difficulties in Asian cultures, um, but they don't have this particular form so much. But he said now, as he travels, he sees it in the countries that are getting Westernized, like Taiwan and Singapore. Um, that this tendency to judging and this, this sense of um, insufficiency, he's seeing it more and more in people. So it's, 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 it's a real form of suffering that's very real. So I found it really helpful, as I said, just to start to understand how and why this tendency, this judging voice came into being. Again, from Byron Brown, this is a, a quote, As children, we had to learn social norms to get along, develop a conscience. 
as this procedure became internalized, it became overactive and overcritical. This voice becomes the judge, the critic of everything we experience. We can come to see now as adults that this voice is not so helpful. It limits us and it controls us. If we look at that voice, the basic message of the judging voice is, I'm not good enough and people won't like me just as I am. You know, if people really knew what I was like, I have to put up this persona to be accepted. And it follows that with, you'll never change. You haven't got what it takes. This is such a common voice that we hear. He goes on to say, the judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. It is a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a God that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides directions as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who, who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you are not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of these functions in yourself. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do that are recognized as existing in you. When you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with your judge and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget, the judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. A society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience inside ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive, and it does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. Ring true. How many times have you had that thought, not enough metta, not doing it right, not an open heart, not good at this? We cannot truly deepen unless we start to challenge that message of insufficiency that can be there. So one of the ways that Byron Brown talks about working with the judge, and one of the things he did at the workshop I did with him, was have us ask the question, What's right about judging? And we had to do this actually in a diet. If you've ever done repeating questions, it was one of those kind of explorations. And it was really interesting to me. I mean, I was so familiar with the judging voice and I'd never stopped to consider this question. What's right about it? And basically it means to look, why do I perpetuate it? It's there for a reason. 
I'm not stupid. I don't, you know, kind of make this up for my own happiness and well-being, but why am I giving this kind of thinking energy? And what I really saw is the judging voice has a hook in it. It has some form of pleasure or satisfaction, even in the most negative self-referencing. And it can be kind of, what do you mean? It's horrible. I feel terrible when I have those thoughts. Look and see. We Habits only form because they feed us or serve us in some way. And at first, it's often unconscious. We're not even tracking what's going on and the habit gets formed. But we can actually start to inquire into how does the judge serve us? And maybe you're familiar with this and you've looked at this. And, you know, there are some obvious ones, but we need to get below that level. You know, as as Byron Brown said, the judge serves us because we feel we know what's right. You know, it's our conscience, right and wrong. It feels like a kind of wisdom. It keeps us out of trouble, keeps us on the straight and narrow, as they say. But it's also so limiting. And it shapes our experience because of this constant flow of judging, so much so that we're not even aware of that process happening. We're not even aware that we're being shaped by this negative self-view or this negative worldview. We usually think that what's happening in our minds are observations. You know, this is how things are. They're not judgments, it's just I'm like that and you're like this, and she's like that and she shouldn't be like that, he should have done this. Observations, right? We need to really learn the difference between the two. And that's where, again, meditation can be so helpful as we um, become closer to reality, which is what we do in practice. We start to see how we're constantly um, shaped by perceptions and projections, and that these are actually functionings of the mind that we can start to observe happening. They're not something that sort of happens to us and we're helpless victims, we can actually get to know these. We're so often under the illusion that because we think something, it must be true. And, you know, there's a kind of, oh, speak your truth, and if it's true for you, yes, and, you know, we need to actually feel into and get closer to the truth of things. And out of that sort of self-referencing lost in our own world, we can sometimes lose touch with, lose sight of how our words and actions impact others. We're so concerned about our own inner world that we actually aren't so careful sometimes, not even aware of how our actions impact others. So this is really important. And we can use our practice to directly work with this tendency of mind of the inner critic As I said, metta practice is one of the best ways I know of doing this. We begin this practice with caring for ourselves, with these wishes for safety and happiness, for well-being and ease. The more we can truly align with that intention, the less energy we will be able to give to the judging mind. It's like you, you can't hold both. I wish to be happy. I truly wish to be happy and safe. But you're a pathetic loser and, you know, who do you think you are? You can't do both. The dissonance just gets 
too almost ridiculous and you you almost you can start to laugh at this voice and it's really good as i'll say to to bring um humor into this it's like what am i doing to myself when i give energy to that voice that's so dismissive on the sheet also we ha- i don't think anyone's talked about it i know how i haven't there's a optional phrase of may i love and accept myself just as i am and i can remember being on a retreat where someone first offered that as a practice a- and i you know my first response was are you kidding you know maybe after the 10 point improvement program or you know when i fix this or that but i couldn't even conceive of saying that as a phrase but someone told me to say it so i did i didn't mean it but i said it and it was amazing that saying it without meaning it helped me come to mean it and it doesn't mean i always mean it completely and always accept myself 100% but it i mean i was going to say amazing i don't know the the shift that's happened through this practice and the willingness to keep coming back to that intention to not give so much energy to this voice that belittles me that belittles us And so we just start to align more and more with this intention towards kindness and we don't just aim it out there. This is almost the most important place to aim that towards. We've talked about continuity of the practice. One of the ways I think it's really beautiful to practice on a metta retreat is to see all of the actions that you do through the day of taking care of yourself as acts of metta. cleaning your teeth taking a shower taking rest you know eating you know you might think oh that's just what i do but to, it's just shifting the perspective and their expressions of caring so we just look at them a little differently to try and convince ourselves that i do care about myself and maybe for some of you that's not an issue it's clear for you it was not that way for me i had to really sort of do this aikido move on myself to to get myself to acknowledge that I do care for myself and that I'm worthy of caring you know that it's not sort of a distorted thing to do but actually really essential so just the simple things of the day that keep you coming back to this intention of caring for self and aligning more and more with that another important practice It's more of a mindfulness practice but it works in metta too is just seeing the judgments for what they are they're a thought in the mind a thought in the mind is just a little blip of energy it has a beginning a middle and an end and thoughts have the power we choose to give them if you believe them if you don't question them if you just say lay it on me there's your world and it's one of limitation and pain and separation and suffering and you've probably had the experience of turning to a thought and recognizing it or judging or meanness or evaluation and what happens it's gone i mean that's all a thought is a blip of energy that we can actually relate to just like a sound or a sensation in the body this is such a a a um 
a huge turning, you know, because when we believe them, as I said, they shape our world. This is again from Byron Brown. The only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep down inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judge. So it's this really a process of exploration. Many of us don't get there until we kind of hit bottom, though, and we, we don't see, you know, we, we get to where we don't really have any other choice. I was there myself. I was on, actually, my first Metta retreat. When I thought of doing Metta, and I know there are some of you out there who have a similar take, I said, God forbid, you know, last thing I want to do, I I thought it would be like living in a Hallmark card, you know, may every day and every way be everything, be better and better and, you know, sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and that's not me. So I was like really clear that I did not need or want to do metta practice and um, I don't know if some other people in my life convinced me that it might be so or whether I just came to that realization that, you know, the thing that I most was averse to perhaps would be helpful. Um, When I decided to do that, I didn't even know if we had meta retreats. Maybe we did. Um, But I chose to go on a six-week Vipassana retreat where I just got my instructions from my teacher. Every two or three days for 15 minutes, I'd get a little download of um, very bare-bones instructions on metta. I didn't have gardens of the heart and fountains giving water and, you know, (laughs) let's all be in this together and everything. It was really very, as I said, bare-bones. But I really tried, you know, I could feel and know the value of it. And, you know, day by day I'd go into my interviews and I'd be saying, well, I feel a little kind, you know, kind of friendly. You know, wasn't anything to write home about, but, you know, I'm, I'm not totally aversive day by day. Uh, you know, and the judging voice was there going, who do you think, you know, who did you think you were to try and do a meta retreat, et cetera, et cetera. And then one day I remember going into my interviewing teacher, who is very kind and very wise person, and just basically saying, well, it's kind of working, but it's not great, you know, it's a little bit of meta, it's not good. And I forget even what it was now, but he changed my practice in some way, maybe changed who I, you know, was sending meta to or something. You know, I can, you know, he said something like, why don't you try that? Yeah, that sounds good. Try that. And I, I, as we are wont to do, as I left there and walked down to my walking meditation path, I can still admit, you know, I can see it in my mind's eye so clearly. Step by step, I took his words and I projected on them or what he was feeling. And my projection was that he was thinking, oh, my God, she's hopeless. You know, she's never going to get this. What am I going to do with her? And, of course, then I internalized that. I'm hopeless. Who did I think I was to do meta and for six weeks and never had a loving heart, never loved, unlovable, you know, hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. And I was in such a state, you know, it's, and it's painful, right? I was in Massachusetts. I live in California. I'd sublet my house. You know, I didn't have a car. I was like, get me out of here, you know? The school bus would go by. I was like, can I get on the school bus? Anything that being here. And I actually had the thought, can I fake it? 
can I stay on this retreat? And just going, oh yeah, metta, you know, nice, good, metta. Because I thought it's hopeless. I, I can't do this. You know, who was I kidding? And I was just getting more and more into this state. And it was very familiar, very familiar. And then luckily at some point, and I have to think it's because I had been doing the practice for about two weeks, even though I totally didn't think it was working, this thought came and it, the thought was, you know, this is really familiar. You could go down. It was like I was on the edge of the abyss. They said, you could go down there and you could swim around in that muck for what? Hours? Days? Six weeks? You know, you could. But at some point, you would come out. Whether time or someone saying something, you know, some shift would happen. And the thought was, what would it take to get from here to there without going down? you know, to get to that place where you kind of found some balance again. And my understanding was I would have to accept that this was my metta practice, that that's all I could do. If I had the idea it should be different, I was going to suffer. So, you know, it's kind of like take a big breath and just keep walking with this very simple, very bare bones, very low bar metta practice. And I did, you know, it was such a moment of grace. It wasn't like some big epiphany and, you know, then the rainbows and the unicorns came out, you know, it's just, no, I, I just do it this way and that has to be okay. But because I could do that, because I could keep going, the practice really did develop. And I had amazing experiences on that retreat that I would never have Uh, if I hadn't been able to just keep going and accept my practice for how it was. So it was a really significant turning and that sense of how do I get from there to here without beating myself up? Because it doesn't help. You know, it's like that great story Anushka told of being stuck on the freeway and, you know, you wind the window down, what's happening? (laughs) And you, the other time, oh, I don't know, you know, but you're there, you're stuck. You know, you're all stuck the same no matter how you're relating to it. How can we accept this experience? How can we accept ourselves? This is what we need to do. And it's a, this is a purification practice. All of the senses of limitations, of old wounds that we have, of ways we've let ourselves down and let other people down, they will come up for us. It's why we teach the forgiveness practice. But what it has to come down to is some basic acceptance, some really foundational shift. As James was saying so beautifully, you know, I'm okay. You know, I'm not the best person in the world, but I'm not the worst. I'm okay, just as I am. Can I really uh, be with that? So for me, it was transformative to do this practice and actually really start to align with the sense of well-wishing for myself. And out of that, the heart gets steadier and stronger, and we can start to look at the other ways that we judge. And it's really understandable if we have a sense of deficiency that we judge others as a protection. You know, it's, it's really uh, interesting to see that, that we, can, we do that just to protect ourselves, to feel superior, so that we actually don't have to feel that sense of limitation really important that we look at that kind of judging too. It's easier to see, you know, it's a little more painful, but it's out of the same sense of deficiency, out of the same sense of 
disconnection. So as we get more in touch with our own sense of goodness, kindness to ourselves, that tendency to judge outwards can really lessen. I remember uh, one yogi and coming into an interview and just saying, really what I've seen, I just need to keep saying to myself, lower your standards a little and relax. You know how we ha- think we have to be the vig- vigilant about you know, everything everyone is doing and how they're washing the dishes and you know, peeling the vegetables or something. It's just like, let it be. You know, don't even go there. It's just painful. So as I said, one of the ways to, to look at this is really reflecting on why do we carry this message? Why do we internalize it? And this hook, this, this um, pleasantness almost, you could say, this habit that gets formed because it feeds us in some way. So I always encourage people to look at what's the message for you about why you judge yourself as deficient? What's the payoff? For me, you know, one of the funny ones I saw was, and it, I mean, I still feel silly saying it, but I saw this in my mind. I might be a hopeless case, but at least I know I'm hopeless. Not like that, those people over there who are so deluded, they're not even aware of how pathetic they are. You know, like, I know I'm pathetic. I have that much, you know. So we try to find a little, you know, elevation, even as we're judging ourselves negatively. And it was also for me, um, when I was convincing myself that I was not okay, I didn't have to show up. You know, I didn't have to put my hand up in class or volunteer to do something or or even reach out to a friend because they wouldn't want me or I'm not worthy or I, I wouldn't know what to say. So it was a defense of just letting me curl up. I would think of this judging as like this shabby old coat. And, you know, if you saw it without any relationship to it, yeah, what a stinky old thing. But we're so, we put it on, you know, and it's torn and tattered and grimy, but it's ours, right? And we put it on. For many of us, the judging voice, the critical voice, was actually a protection as we felt attacked in whatever way, whatever form of abuse we might have suffered, emotional or physical, whatever, as a child, we had to align ourselves with those authority figures. And internalizing that voice was a protection. And so learning how to heal from those deep wounds is really a powerful way that this metta practice can work for us. It's so confusing, you know, when we're children, we're getting these messages of, oh, you're too much like that and not enough like this. And why can't you be more like her? And that's too much of this and you don't have enough of that. And so we, we, we latch on to that. You know, it's like if we can tell ourselves that that's our navigation system, which we're trying to figure out who we are and who we should be, so we internalize these messages. So it's really important that we start to first recognize, and that's the mindfulness of just seeing this voice. Whose voice is it? You know, how old were we when this voice started to uh, be shaped? And then really question, you know, is this really what I want to believe? Do I believe this? You know, challenging these beliefs. As I said, we start to, as we align more and more with this wish for happiness, which do I want to believe? May I be happy? I really truly wish happiness and well-being. Or that I'm a worthless, hopeless person 
who will never achieve what I want in life. I mean, which, just, you know, objectively, which one do you think, you know, is more helpful for us to actually align ourselves with? So we use the clarity of the mindfulness coupled with the kindness that gets developed in the heart to actually challenge those beliefs. We bring compassion to this form of suffering. We're willing to feel it. And for me, that was also a big part. I was so armored that the judging, you know, as, as, as I've said, it's just second nature. I didn't even let it in. It was like just the truth, you know, yeah, it's hopeless, pathetic, whatever. It just sort of, I would say, rolled off like a water off a duck's back. It didn't really because it, you know, it really shaped me, but I didn't feel the pain of it really until I started practicing. So just as in the compassion, we let ourselves feel the pain of that. Pain when it's directed to ourselves and the pain when it's directed to others. And that tenderness can, again, not to judge ourselves or beat ourselves up for having it, not to blame or shame, but to really acknowledge that this is a wounding that's happening. Um, And it's something that we can actually work with. As I said, it's conditioned. Many of us end up doing what we call reparenting or inner child work, where we just have a sense of that young girl or young boy at that age she was shaped and formed by these words from society, from parental figures, and just say, it's okay. You know, I really care about you. and I'm going to listen to your stories and comb your hair and take you to the playground, whatever it is that just meets that, that place in us that feels little, that feels young, that doesn't feel loved, and brings it into the light, brings it into the light of our heart. Sri Nisargadatta, that uh, very wise Indian uh, saint guru, says, all you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-condemnation and self-distrust are grievous errors. All I plead with you is this, make love of yourself perfect. So all these teachers, all these wise beings are telling us it's possible, telling us how important it is. It really can be a central part of our practice working in this way. And as I've said, almost an essential part of our practice to bring this healing in, whether this is a major suffering for you or just something that brings a sense of limitation. However it manifests, we work with it. So just some practical tips about working with judging. It's really important to bring humor into this because it can be very painful, as I've said. But once you start to look at what these thoughts are actually telling you, I mean, it is quite laughable, really, what the voice is saying. One of Jack Cornfield's uh, uh, ideas is, Count, start counting the judgments, you know, how many in a day. And by the time you get up to 567, you realize it's just a habit. It's just almost a reflex that the mind just goes with whatever it is it's experiencing. Say, you know, give it a name. I had someone who gave it a personification. She had this big stuffed purple dinosaur. You know, so it's kind of an angry or, you know, a a strong figure, but it was just a fluffy toy. Give it a name. Give it a persona. Mrs. Smith. Thanks for your opinion, Mrs. Smith, but I'm I'm quite doing quite well on my own. Thank you very much. Feel into what's fueling the judgment. Anytime we have 
any kind of obsessive thinking, whether it's this kind of thought or just planning and worrying, there's some emotion that's fueling it. So we recognize the thought, as I said, to see the thought as just a thought. If we see it clearly and don't buy into it, often they disappear, they just lose their energy. But we can also drop into what's the feeling tone. And it doesn't mean there's some neon sign pointing and saying, oh, here's judging or here's humility, you know, here's shame. It's often this swirling um, mass of, of, of feeling but we just attend with that and we can feel that there's suffering there. So feel the constriction. For me, it can be very physical between the eyebrows, in the mouth, in the chest or the heart, the stomach. Feel that. And that can be a sign, actually, if you find there's that contraction, it's a, it's a sign. Oh, how am I relating to this? Am I la- relating to this experience with some sense of evaluation or judging? Joseph Goldstein has a practice where he says, every time you notice a judging thought, you add, and the sky is blue. So I tried that because Joseph, my teacher, and it didn't work because I would have a judging thought, and I'd say, and the sky is blue, and I'd go, yeah, you're damn right the sky is blue. And that's true, too. You know, I am hopeless or worthless. So that did not work for me. So I did my own variation at this retreat at IMS on the East Coast, where if you're from the East Coast or been there, you know they have these little animals called chipmunks. You probably know chipmunks. They're very little. They're like mini squirrels, little <laughs> cute things. And they just, they're everywhere there. And they run around and they're collecting the you know, little cheeks filled with little nuts. And they have seed out for the chipmunks, so they're always busy. And I would take the seed and feed them. And I'm an animal lover, you might have guessed. And so I made my practice that every time I had a judging thought, I would add, and chipmunks are cute. And it was like dangling a little sparkly thing in front of a two-year-old that was having a tantrum. It's like, no, 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 look at this, look at this. And I said, and chipmunks, oh, chipmunks, I love chipmunks. And I was amazed how well it worked. So whatever your chipmunk is, I offer that to see if it would help you. So the more we see how we actually create this form of suffering, as I said, it's conditioned. It has some deep roots, but we have learned this particular flavor that we're experiencing now. Really trust it can be unconditioned. We can learn how to work with this. And metta, as we've been saying, is a beautiful antidote. You have a judging thought. Can you say, oh, honey, may you be happy. You know, just let that drop. Whatever it is to actually bring the metta in instead of the judging, whether it's for yourself or someone else. And even if it doesn't feel real, even if it feels forced or artificial, I think I've used this line already, but I think it's great. My wise friend, Carol Wilson, fake metta is better than real aversion any day. You know, so we do, we can fake, just say it. Just like I said, I said that phrase, may I love and accept myself. I was almost gagging as I said, oh, may I love and... But just to keep saying it. And then eventually we do start to mean it. And we start to see how our whole practice is a movement towards wholeness and happiness, towards congruity, towards becoming in alignment with our deeper values, and that we're not willing to perpetuate those, those thoughts, those things that cause suffering. And we have a choice. 
This is a big thing that practice teaches us. We have a choice. The mindfulness, which is why mindfulness practice is, lets us see where are we? What are we saying to ourselves? What are we feeling? Just as I did when I was in my, I call it a meta meltdown. You know, what's happening? It gave me a choice point. And we can choose whether we believe them or not. Sometimes we do. We just say, yeah, you're right. You know, right now I'm just in this. But we'll start more and more to not believe them. The more and more we affirm our wish to be happy, our genuine and deep belief in that possibility, it literally changes our hearts and minds and how we relate to the world and to ourselves. I want to just finish with a letter that someone wrote me after one of these retreats uh, a year or so ago. And he wrote, Dear Sally, you interviewed me at noon on the next to last day of the recent Meta retreat. It had had no impact on me whatsoever up to that point, as so far as I could tell, and I was disappointed. That puts it nicely. Disgruntled is perhaps a more complete description. And I remember that interview because I'm like, it's all, you know, any little bit of meta, low bar, you know, don't judge, you know, all the things we say to people. But he was really unhappy. I can remember him sitting there. And he, but he goes on to say, but not long after I left the interview room, I noticed that my attitude toward my, towards my fellow retreatants had changed. Until that moment, I had formed a critical opinion of each person my eyes fell on. <laughs> but now my attitude was different. I wished each of them well. When my eyes fell on someone, I would send that person my good wishes, perhaps even my love. In short, the transformation I had hoped for but knew I could not elicit or count on had taken place. This mood or feeling continued for several days after the retreat. I continue to say metaphrases silently to myself as I go through my day, and I continue to feel more kindly towards others than I did before the retreat, even if I am no longer as blissed out as I was during the last 24 hours of the retreat. You know, so the highs don't last, but this basic sense of goodwill, of kindness, that can really be transformative. And that's possible for all of us. And it's what I wish for you. And let's let the words just settle into silence. Thank you for your attention. Again, about half an hour till we have our last sitting with chanting. If you have the energy, I invite you to come join us. <laughs> 